I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Band Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. One of the things that keeps turning over in my mind is how the energy transition will evolve from here particularly in the wake of the tragic Russia-Ukraine conflict. Indeed, we're already witnessing a substantial acceleration in the clean energy transition through the EU's Repower EU plan. But there's a catch. The transition will now have to coexist alongside a radically ambitious diversification away from Russian oil and gas supplies. And that has consequences. As you'll hear in this podcast episode, cutting oil hurts Russia more than Europe. But cutting gas hurts Europe more. And when over half of headline inflation in the euro area can be tracked back to the rise in energy costs, the ECB's recent warnings about greenflation, climateflation, and even fossilflation are now a painful reminder that transitions are seldom simple. So the point of this episode is to pose some uncomfortable but necessary questions. Like, will the energy transition now complicated by the energy diversification away from Russia, lead to a full-blown energy crisis? How are policymakers going to balance decarbonization, price affordability, and energy security? And do we need to consider a more pragmatic energy approach, call it the good over the perfect, to achieve energy security and price affordability, at least in the short term? It's why it's great to have Rob West from Thundersed Energy on the podcast. Rob brings a clear-eyed and sometimes sobering perspective to the arc of the energy transition. We talk about what's at stake for the energy complex as we diversify away from Russia, the first and second order impacts of the conflict, and the trade-offs that we may increasingly face as policymakers choose between energy security, decarbonization, and affordability. Rob West is the CEO of Thunderset Energy, a research consultancy focused on the energy transition. Founded in 2019, Thunderset Energy's research examines different energy technologies, their economics, their technical challenges, and companies that drive decarbonization. Thunder Energy's clients include public market investors, private equity investors, and multinational corporations that are themselves looking to reach net zero. Prior to Thunderset Energy, Rob was the head of global energy research at Redburn. Welcome to the podcast, Rob West. It's great to have you here, and thank you so much for taking the time. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. That's great. I'm really uh, excited uh, in particular about this episode. So let's jump in. So look, Rob, we have a ton of questions to chew on, but I'd like to start with some scene setting. The Ukraine conflict is a tragic, terrible, terrible event. And we've seen a universal pushback in many different forms. But can you start out by sort of putting Russian oil and gas supply in context for us? And, and what's really at stake for European and global energy markets, given Russia is no longer a reliable source of energy supply for the Western world? Well, if, if we're going to start with scene setting, then I think we should start with scene setting. For that, maybe we need to go back a little bit further to what the numbers looked like before Russia so back when I was a oil and gas analyst, you know, I would have an oil model or I would have an LNG model, but it's really only in the last six months that I have what I call an everything model, which is you know adding together all the world's supply of coal, oil, gas, nuclear, hydro, wind, solar, 
like to build a, a total market balance for all of global energy. And the way that looked, we were about 2% light going into 2022. And that undersupply was going to deepen to about 10% light by 2026 and stay at that kind of humanitarian crisis level of energy shortage through 2030. And I actually think that that's part of the reason that Russia has timed its atrocities for, for now is because it's a time when it can weaponize its energy supplies. In terms of the numbers, generally, if, if you want good rules of thumb, whatever the commodity, you should assume that Russia is about 10% of the world's supply and about 30% of Europe's supply. You know, the, the numbers are a little different commodity by commodity, but uh, you know, higher in gas, a bit lower in coal, similar for metals like nickel or materials like graphite. And so this is going to ripple through every supply chain in the world and turn it all upside down. Let's stay on this picture of, of global energy markets. If direct sanctions or self-sanctions, frankly, of Russia put as much as I've heard four to five million barrels a day, you tell me if that's accurate, but if it puts that much uh, oil and products exports structurally at risk, how do you see that gap getting filled in the short term? I don't. I, I think you can't fill that gap with anything in the short term. What you can do is you can find ways of cushioning the blow by choosing what demand you cut. The analogy I'm afraid I would use is, you know, you're going to get punched. You can at least choose where you get punched. And, um, you know, I've had conversations with policymakers about this. I mean, it's amazing if you could look just back to April 2020, we were in a world that cut 20 million barrels a day of oil demand voluntarily through behavioral changes linked to the COVID response. You know, we could take out all of Russian exports, just about 8 million barrels a day, if we wanted to, if we were brave, if we decided that here is the least bad way to do this. And, and there's a combination of measures, things like lowering national speed limits to 50 miles an hour, making ride sharing and public transport effectively free, through to selecting the industries that are frankly least strategic and deciding, look, of all the things that we can do to, to reduce demand, these, these are least painful. And I think to get to that point where politicians are brave enough to do that is going to require prices to spike to a level where we have no other choice but to do that. I think if politicians are too proactive with this, there's a danger that we lose the political will. And so my, my kind of base case scenario of what's going to happen is we're going to see prices spike to like $200 a barrel this summer. And then reluctantly, we have no choice but effectively a raft of demand sanctioning measures. So there are a lot of things in there that I want to put a pin in. Prices, let's come back to it. Behavior change is fascinating. I definitely want to come back to that. But let's talk about flexibility in the system or the lack of flexibility. I guess, again, in the short term, can OPEC come to the rescue despite what seem like diverging messages from the UAE and Saudi Arabia? What about Iran or the US oil supply response? I think it's a question of can or will. My sense is that there's a feeling among some OPEC countries that until last year, the message they've been receiving from the world is roll over and die. And this, this is not to kind of be a champion of OPEC or even an OPEC sympathizer, but things in this industry take 30 years in terms of the life of these projects. And there's this real mismatch between wanting the supply to be there and be available when we happen to want it, and then telling the companies and countries behind long life projects over the long term, we expect you to roll over and die. And I know in my day job as a researcher focused on the energy transition, there are things that companies in this space want to do, like carbon capture and storage, blue hydrogen, 
nature-based carbon removals. Like these are all really good things to do. They're, they're low cost. They're technically ready. They can help meet the energy needs of the world and take out all the CO2. And I think one of the pushbacks that we've seen against some of these options is, no, they perpetuate the use of fossil fuels. We want you to roll over and die. How dare you even suggest it? You're not invited to COP26. And I'm not trying to kind of be controversial or say things that like inflame people. But I think if I were the head of a petro economy, I'd be looking for long term reassurances about, okay, we want to work collaboratively to meet your energy needs over the long run, take out all the CO2 and do it in a way that's beneficial to all of us. One of the models that I'm really fascinated by is could we see a return to long term contracting to guarantee security of supply and the energy transition and help manage some of these uncertainties? And I'm fascinated by that because it would be a really strange day where we wake up to a press release from a oil and gas company signing a 20 year take or pay fixed price contract with a European sovereign. You know, <laughs> I really don't know what the share price would do on that day. But I think it's things like that that I would be looking towards in order to see big commitments for big increases in supply on a short, medium, long term basis. I feel like this kind of takes us into the energy trilemma because you've talked a lot about these points. And, and I know that trilemma has been around for many years. I feel like it's fascinating that it's particularly activated over the last 12 months, i.e. 12 months ago, using the energy trilemma as a model, the point of that triangle was aimed at decarbonization, particularly going into COP26 and, and seeing the momentum behind net zero commitments from sovereigns, from corporates, from investors. Then it shifted to price affordability in the fall, ironically, around COP26 with the volatility in energy markets. And now it firmly points to energy security. So I just, I picture this sort of flywheel that has just accelerated kind of in its spinning. How do you see policymakers balancing and reprioritizing these three objectives in the short and medium term? The point of the trilemma is that policymakers, I've always thought, can't prioritize all of these objectives simultaneously. But we're kind of trying to see that weird balance around, let's call it price caps on affordability, still decarbonization, and in fact, you know, potentially an acceleration around that, as well as a strategic diversification of energy sources from a security standpoint. Well, it's a pretty depressing view of policymakers that they're like goldfish who can only keep one thing in their mind at all times and sort of bounce from crisis to crisis to crisis. I'm not going to get drawn into whether that's a good model or not. But I would say from the research that we've done, you can do all three of these things. I mean, I have a fully modeled roadmap to get the world to net zero. Zero means zero. There's no funny business. There's no cheating. This is like how to build a 100,000 terawatt hour energy system with no net CO2, average abatement cost $40 a ton, 90% of this using real technologies that are either at technical readiness level 7, 8, 9 mostly eight and nine. I think what we've seen so far, if I was going to point a finger at policy people I've had interactions with, is this fantasy of the perfect derailing the implementation of the good. So what I mean by that is you could take a theme like replacing coal with gas and you could say, okay, so one MTPA of LNG is going to cancel five MTPA of CO2 emissions that would otherwise have come from coal, because burning the gas is about 60% lower carbon than getting the same energy from coal. Half the energy in the methane molecule is, is from turning hydrogen into water in that CH4 molecule. And it's not materially more expensive, especially if you do it right. The technology to do this has existed for a better part of 70 years. And yet, you know, one of the frustrating things that you might observe about this is, no, 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 
60% lower carbon, no good. We don't want that. And I think part of 2022 might involve a realization that having a 60% lower carbon solution is better than having no solution to a lot of the challenges that the world is now facing, such as evil dictators raping and pillaging innocent countries for no apparent reason, or the ripple effects of food shortages, or 4 billion people being priced out of the world and having to cut down their forests in order to keep themselves warm rather than using energy supplied by sophisticated modern energy industry. So I I think it is possible you can get to net zero in a way that meets the varying goals of the trilemma. And maybe a silver lining might be that we get more practical policies out of this horrible mess we find ourselves in between now and 2030. Can you go into that? What do you mean by practical policies in the context of that trilemma model? Well, I think the way I would spell it out is to go into the model of, you know, if I take the 300 different technologies we've looked at and the relative costs, today the world's about 50 billion tons a year of CO2. If we did nothing by 2050, it'd be about 80 billion tons a year of CO2. And the options exist to take out about 200 billion tons of CO2. So you could decarbonize the world, you know, two and a half times over. And the question is, so what combination of these abatement options do you pick? And the first thing you can do is to say, well, I'm not going to pick any of them because none of them are perfect. And I'm being a bit inflammatory there, but that's effectively what we've done, or at least we haven't picked enough of them. And as a result, this year will be a record year for CO2 emissions and a record year for energy prices, sort of the worst of both worlds. The model I would favor is take the lowest cost combination of things. So if you think the average American is about 20 tons of CO2 emissions per American per year, the TSE roadmap to net zero costs an average of $40 a ton. So you multiply through and that's about $800 per American. It's about 3% of the average person's disposable income. And, and you know, you have to go door to door in Nebraska and uh, tell people you're taking away 3% of their disposable income every year forever without getting shot. And, and that's tough, but it's a lot less tough than doing nothing or choosing an option that costs $400 a ton. And um is like 30% of the average income of the average person. (laughs) So uh, what would go into that roadmap? Well, about 20% of the heavy lifting would be done by renewables. About 20% would be done by switching coal to gas, for the reason I mentioned above. About 25% would be done by efficiency technologies, finding ways of doing more with less. And those get really granular, everything from electric vehicles through to, you know, axial flux motors or whatever you want to pick. And then you'd still have conventional fossil energy in that system. You just can't ramp non-fossil energy fast enough. And as a result of that, I'd have about 85 million barrels a day of oil and 325 TCF a year of gas in that fully decarbonized energy system. And I'd have to get all the CO2 out. And that would be through a combination of carbon capture technologies and carbon removal technologies. And really the last one is the most important, the biggest bar in the whole waterfall chart. It would involve reforesting about 3 billion acres of the world and restoring nature. And if you're in the environmental movement and you like nature, to me, that seems like the most logical and direct way to help nature is to help nature. And you can pull CO2 out of the atmosphere in the process. So that would be what I would consider a good, practical, realistic roadmap. I mean, I've glossed over a lot of the details there, but... It's doable. And I've modeled where the bottlenecks are. And really, I think the opportunity for investors is we need to find those bottlenecks and de-bottleneck them. Because when you can do that, you can drive the energy transition. And bottlenecks tend to be things where prices go up. And so that is the other reason that's a fruitful, interesting place to explore for opportunities. That's a really interesting roadmap. How do you think about it relative to kind of the, the reaction we've seen so far 
in the context of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I guess what I mean is if we back up a year, Germany was shutting down nuclear plants and building a natural gas pipeline, i.e. Nord Stream 2 with Russia. But now as the situation has dramatically and tragically changed, that European energy narrative is also shifting. It's, it's both about decarbonization and energy security. The European Commission, I think last month, outlined plans to end reliance on Russian supplies by 2030, I think by two-thirds by as soon as 2025, which is incredibly aggressive. You're seeing a change even in the rhetoric. Germany's finance minister even called renewable energy freedom energy. What's your read on how this changes and or accelerates the energy transition towards the roadmap that you just outlined? What's the rhetoric and what's the reality that you've seen so far? Well, there's a hundred different pieces and they all change. But the biggest change that I would separate out is what we say we want to do and what we actually can do. And they're completely different things. I'll give you an example. Like We obviously want to ramp up electric vehicles. I mean, over the life of an electric vehicle, it's 80% lower carbon than a conventional vehicle. So nobody who focuses on the energy transition is in any doubt that we want to ramp up electric vehicles as, as much as possible. But can we? And there are reasons to question whether we can. The first one is, is the energy payback is about three and a half years. So you invest upfront in producing the lithium, the nickel, the graphite, the cobalt, all of the materials that go into the battery. And that costs you energy. And then it takes about three and a half years of driving that vehicle around for its energy savings to repay the upfront costs of making the thing. And so if you think about it in years one and two, accelerating electric vehicles actually makes you more short energy. In years one and two, it costs you more energy than it saves. So just from an energy balances perspective, the faster we ramp them up, the more short we're going to be of global energy in 2022, 2023, these kind of crucial crunch years. Likewise, there is only so much lithium, nickel, graphite, cobalt in the world. And we are going to see huge shortages of some of these materials. So, so much so that you know, recent TSE research notes have looked at reshoring the nickel supply chain or the graphite supply chain or direct lithium extraction technologies. And who are the companies in those spaces that you know, can help de-bottleneck those bottlenecks? But basically, like this stuff becomes unobtainium. For the next couple of years. And what I mean by unobtainium is that the only way to obtain it is to outbid somebody else. And when you think about what that does to commodity prices, the answer is it makes them go crazy and also benefits incumbents who produce those commodities. This is a really interesting illustration that there are things we say we want to do, and then there's being thwarted by reality. And really what I think the job of an investor is, is to figure out where those bottlenecks are going to be and help people de-bottleneck them. So there are things that I think are just going to fall away for the next couple of years. Things like electric vehicles, the ability to ramp solar, the ability to ramp hydrogen, the ability to build grid scale batteries. Um, we might want to do these things, but they get harder and harder. CCS as well. They get harder and harder to do in this world that we're in. And there are other things that we might have been really negative on before or might have been lost in, in the noise that we actually can do. Like coal is the most interesting example of this. You know, coal. We have to get it to zero as quickly as possible. It's the most carbon emitting energy source in the world. But if you look on a 24 month basis, you could add about 6,000 terawatt hours of global energy from ramping back the old coal mines that have scaled back in the last few years. And does that allay more humanitarian suffering in the short run than the carbon emitted from that coal? And that, that's actually a really interesting debate. So everything changes here. And I actually think, you know, to, to your point, what we've seen from policymakers might be an epic bait and switch. 
you know, bring forward all of the renewables targets, relabel as freedom energy. Of course, we want to do this stuff. But in the short term, it might be a bit of a smokescreen for ramping back all of the domestic coal production in Germany. And I think that might be one of the few levers we can pull to alleviate these energy shortages on a one to two year time frame. So much so that you could even argue that temporarily, reluctantly, coal could be an ESG investment. Hmm, that is actually quite interesting and, and provocative. Speaking of provocative, I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but this question keeps turning over and over in my head. Could the EU's approach in particular, could the EU's approach to replacing Russian gas end up triggering the very crisis it's trying to avoid, which is basically very high prices and a physical shortage of natural gas? We were going to have this anyway. I mean, last year, around this time last year, I read a note saying in 2022, gas prices are going to be $12 an MCF in Europe. Everybody laughed at me and said, $12, you know, don't you know we've got an energy transition? And I think, you know, they've hit $40. And that was even before Russia. So we were already hugely short. From here, my general assessment of this is that cutting the oil hurts Russia more than it hurts us. Cutting the gas hurts us more than it hurts Russia. In the short run, you know, the answer is, okay, we're going to get more LNG cargoes. But if you look at the LNG market, about 60% of it is locked in on contracts. Now, these contracts specifically say this cargo is going to this port in Japan, and they're locked in there. They can't really divert. The divertible liquid LNG market, in terms of upside volumes that could come to Europe, it's about 120 million tonnes. Russia's gas imports to Europe are about 100 million tonnes of LNG equivalent. So to get our hands on this gas requires going to China, Korea, India, and taking all the gas they wanted to buy and outbidding them. And I think that's going to stoke animosities, and it's going to be really challenging. And it's not helpful for you know some analyst behind a spreadsheet to say, well, don't start from here. But that is where I think we start from. So what can we do constructively going forward? Well, the US last year was about 70 million tons of LNG. On my numbers prior to everything that's happened, I thought it might get to 170 million tons of LNG by 2030. It could be 370 million tons of LNG if we really choose to ramp LNG from the US. The delivered cost to Europe is going to be something between $7 and $10 per MCF. Every MTPA displaces 5 MTPA of CO2 that would otherwise come from continued burning of coal. And the real bottleneck, it's not technology, it's not economics, it's not whether we have the materials to build the LNG plants. It's pure, old-fashioned politics. Can you get a pipeline permitted across a state border? Can you get the permit to export the gas to save your allies in Europe from devastating energy shortages? And really, I think that has been an area where people have been on the fence. Oh, is gas clean or not? Do we want it or not? We need it. And really, I think that's the biggest thing that I think we can add on top of what we wanted to do already, which is ramp renewables as much as we can, ramp efficiency as much as we can. And there are good options in, in those different categories. But those were already in my model. And really what we need is we need stuff on top of that because my model was going to make us 10% short in all of global energy by, by 2030. Can you give a sense to the degree to which we have underinvested in oil and gas development? Until last year, I remember kind of reading some literature that I believe talked about oil and gas capex at near all-time lows. How do you fill that short-term gap that is fossil fuel-oriented 
from an incentive perspective. I mean, we're effectively asking the oil and gas complex to spend 15, 20, 30 year CapEx uh, to fill this short to midterm problem. The underinvestment is about $500 billion going back to 2016. And the way I've quantified that is I have this model of how you'd get the world to net zero and how much wind, solar, oil, gas, coal, you would need every category in that model. And then I know what we would have needed to have spent and I know what we actually have spent. And and that's the difference, about $500 billion. You know, the industry spends about a trillion dollars a year in primary energy and $2 trillion a year in broader energy, including downstream and grids and energy consuming technologies. So, you know, that we're talking about a really big number here. Your question about how do we get the buy-in to to ramp supplies? I mean, I think this is exactly the right question. And I would say that this is not a gripe between is it wind or is it solar or is it gas? We need all of these things. And the best way to unlock the most uncertain ones is to remove the uncertainties, remove the barriers that are stopping the investment from flowing in. So this is why I think we might have this move back towards longer term contracts where sovereign governments say, look, we're going to need 100,000 barrels a day of oil every year through 2040, even on the most dramatic upheaval of our energy system linked to the energy transition. So we're going to lock it in on a contract and we're going to take that contract out with the producer. And that certainty will allow that producer to finance that project. And hey, if through some miracle we manage to decarbonize even faster and we don't need that oil and gas, that's just fine. We will put it in storage You'll still buy it and it will be a strategic reserve that we can call upon if there is ever a war in the future or to draw it back out of storage if we turn out to need more supplies down the line. And really, I don't see how you build 30-year projects without that kind of security. Regardless, and I know we're going to talk about this, You know, the the time to build them is so long that we don't really have time to dilly-dally. If you think the fastest thing you can build in the energy industry is a solar asset at maybe four years from conception, glimmer in the eye, to commissioning the project. Wind averages about six years. LNG averages about six years. Pipelines, God help you if you have a tough permitting process, but you know, also on that sort of five-ish year time frame. And then you have stuff, you know, on the ridiculous end of the spectrum, like new nuclear plants that on average take. 15 years from conception to commissioning. So we don't really have time to waste. And I think this is why this energy shortage we're in is going to last a very long time is because, you know, even if we started tomorrow, it would take four or five years to change this period of undersupply. And that really goes back to 2014, which which was the peak of the last oil price cycle, peak of the last energy price cycle, and all of that cumulative investment that has been just that little bit light, you know, for eight years now. How do you read the politics of energy prices and all this? We talked about prices earlier, but I'm wondering, do you think decarbonization is possible without higher energy prices? Do you think higher energy prices are an obstacle for decarbonization? In other words, do high prices cut both ways? High prices are not an obstacle for decarbonization. High prices are an obstacle for the world. Remember, there's 8 billion people on this planet, 4 billion of them live in countries with less than $2,000 a year of GDP per capita, and they use 90% less energy than we do in the West per person. And the reason for that is because energy isn't available. And if you look at where, where that energy is going, it's basic needs like fertilizer to grow food or not freezing to death. You know, there's a stat that a 
hot tub in the West consumes more power than an African village of 42 people. And really, I think, you know, the people who are out there who say we're going to do energy transition by making energy expensive so people can't afford to use it. I mean, it's like saying we're going to do an energy transition by causing a humanitarian disaster. I just don't understand. Like if the ESG movement is about maximizing, you know, the well-being of 8 billion people in the world, how on earth is that compatible with this idea of we're going to do that by forcing half of these people into medieval living standards and abject misery? I want to put another spin on this. There's that old adage that's often used in energy markets that the cure to high prices is high prices. What does that mean in the current environment? And when I re-listened to the podcast episode with Alex Grant from Equinor, even he asked, he sort of ruminated, what do high gas prices mean for gas? Does a high price ceiling ultimately drive greater investment back into carbonized fuels like gas, or does it drive greater diversification away from it? This question is a great onion, and there are multiple layers of this onion. In the short term, people are going to have to be priced out of the market because there isn't enough gas to meet everybody's demand. And that's going to put a floor on prices because as soon as prices come down, people who want to use gas and can't afford it will start using it again. In the medium term, it takes that six years to spec out a project that's about two years and then build a project that's about four years. And so the cure to high prices might be high prices, but that's six years away if we start now. And then the third component is, you know, what does the coal price have to be for people to undivest from coal? I know it's an inflammatory way to ask the question, but, you know, like if you're a ESG investor, and I think people are, there are people in this position, like the world is short of energy. 85% of the world's energy is fossil energy today. And there are, there are investors who have said, you know, our fund, it doesn't matter if oil is a billion dollars a barrel, we're never going to invest in oil ever again. And, you know, I think in, in a way, one of the cure for high prices is high prices, that you have to bring the investment dollars back into the industry. So if we have high prices, but the investment doesn't come back in, those high prices could stick around for, for quite a long time. We've already seen some joint venture exits and write downs by energy suppliers exposed to Russia over the last four to six weeks, BP, for instance, and others. What are the second order implications? How difficult is this going to be? How fast do we get these supply chains repositioned? Well, it's, it's effectively so long that it's outside a lot of people's investment horizons. And it's also so long that other things will change a second order effect, as you just said. I mean, one thing that strikes me is, yeah, we, we could take $2 gas from the US and build a giant supply chain to pipe it to the coast, liquefy it, ship the tanks to Europe, and then regasify them and support our industry again. But if that's six years away, a huge amount of our industry in Europe could have closed by then. And you sort of start to wonder, well, why don't I just move the industry to the gas rather than moving the gas to the industry? And I actually think that's that's what's going to happen. A lot of the energy intensive industries in Europe, particularly around chemicals, materials, metals, fertilizers, you're going to see the biggest industrial boom in the US since the Second World War. Because, I mean, I'm just running numbers of, you know, I have about 120 different economic models of how do you make XYZ. The difference between $20 gas in Europe and sub $5 gas in the US, it's just transformational for that move it to the US argument. And I think the shortages might last so long that that's one of the ways they cure, which is something that, you know, it's just going to really transform the whole world. And it's part of that theme you mentioned as well, which is, you know, I think a 10 year consequence of all of this is going to be reshoring. If you think about like battery grade graphite, it's all made in China, photovoltaic silicon basically all made in China. 
And industries like this, I just don't know that's going to be acceptable to the West is to lean so heavily on supplies that we don't control, both from a geopolitical and from a ESG perspective. I mean, there's something like 140 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of photovoltaic silicon as made at coal-fired fabs in China. And we can bring that back to Europe and the US. The only slightly annoying thing is when we bring some of that back to Europe and the US, it's inflationary. Like I think the price of photovoltaic silicon effectively rises two and a half times if you move it from China to middle America. And that might be the right answer for the world in terms of strategic security. But it does take a little bit of a dent out of that old IEA argument that by 2040, all renewable energy is going to be practically free. And I think some models need to be dusted off as a result of that. How does the energy complex invest over the long term, let's say 20, 30 year investments, when the political pendulum swings so rapidly, it seems these days, back and forth. In the US, the EPA went from one direction under Obama, reversed under Trump, and then re-reversed now under the Biden administration. In Europe, just look at the EU taxonomy, uh, you know, and, and the, the feud over natural gas and nuclear as green slash transitional energy sources. How do energy companies, in your experience, make these long-term investments with that kind of, frankly, regulatory volatility? What I've been saying for the last three years is if you build it, the demand will be there. We've been so short of investment that if you'd started building an LNG project three years ago and it was going to come online this year or next year, that would have turned out to have been a pretty good decision and helped the world through this painful period we're going through. I think now the answer feels a bit stale. There's a broader point here, which is we have a 70,000 terawatt hour energy system today. That's equivalent to a kitchen toaster running 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for every man, woman and child on the planet. And by 2050, it's going to be a 100,000 terawatt hour global energy system, at least. And the right answer for companies in this space is we're going to deliver you energy that is affordable and has no net carbon in it. And I work with companies who are trying to do that. And that goes across energy producers through to materials producers, through to manufacturers of manufactured products. Like all of these people are saying, we want to make this thing. We want to make this thing that the world wants. We want to take out all the CO2 from our process. And, you know, I think in a way, the answer to your question is make it impossible for customers to say, we don't want that. If you build a better product and it's cheaper, clearly environmentally better and clearly geopolitically better, you know, people are going to be biting your head off to, to acquire that product from you. And really, you know, that, that sounds really obvious when you say it, but you'd be surprised how many wild goose chases companies have, have been out on to produce things that don't work or, or produce things that are way too expensive or to avoid that decarbonization that I think the world is going to want. That would be my answer to your question. And, you know, the precise roadmap differs in every single industry, but I think the broad principles of business remain true in, uh, in all of them. Dan Jurgen had written an article several months ago, well before the Ukraine conflict, and he posed a really interesting question in that. He said, is this energy shock? And again, the one that he was talking about was in the fall with the price volatility, the fact that, for instance, 25, 26 energy wholesale providers in the UK were going bust. But he asked, is this energy shock a one-off resulting from a unique conjunction of circumstances, or is it the first of what will be several crises resulting from straining too hard to bring 2050 carbon reduction goals rapidly forward, potentially prematurely choking off investment in hydrocarbons, thus triggering 
future shocks. I kind of have a feeling about what, how, how you're going to kind of characterize this, but it seems pretty obvious. I mean, the energy transition feels like it's going to be incredibly bumpy in a lot of different forms. I'm just sad that apparently is the Dan Jurgen position, not the Rob West position. I mean, I've been writing that for three years. I, I completely believe that, you know, it would be better to overinvest and then find that we don't need this resource and leave it in storage than to underinvest and face a catastrophe of energy shortages as we are likely to see this year. Let's switch lanes again. Let's talk about technology solutions. I've been amazed at how many companies have back-end loaded their climate transition plans, largely on the expectation that technologies like carbon capture, blue and green hydrogen, not to mention technologies like ammonium, which lack a global market outside of agriculture and fertilizers. What are the risks in this? I mean, I personally really struggle in kind of discounting or applying discount rates to these technologies that are supposed to be realized from 2035, 2040 on, on a commercial scale, global basis. Yeah, I struggle with that too. The, the thing I've found best to tackle that is I just spend a day a week locked in a room with a stack of patents and I just read them all You know, on a particular company just to understand, can I de-risk this technology in my roadmap to net zero? And I always score them on the same five categories and they range from things where I'm a little bit worried whether the company legitimately has the technology it says it has through to, you know, I always joke that like you read a hundred pages of patents and then on one page you find like the one killer piece of information that just changes the way you think about everything. And you just get unbelievably excited about, you know, what, what a company is doing. I like using that apples to apples framework. I've noticed that every time I do one of these patent screens, I make myself feel very stupid about, you know, what I, what I did not know before I did it. But, you know, over time, I've, I think I've tried to do about one of those per week since I started Thunderset Energy. You just really find the things that you just think are so exciting and want to de-risk in the models and, and the things where you think, well, I can't quite de-risk that yet because of, you know, challenges A, B and C. The second way I've, I found that's really useful to, to tackle that is, you know, just to model everything using apples to apples assumptions. I need a 10% unlevered return. I'm going to put in the same general carbon price, the same general electricity price, the same general labor rate into all those models and score them all apples to apples and just say, you know, what abatement cost does that imply for that technology? And have that kind of quantitative framework and, and bring it all back to numbers. And that has been helpful for me in building up a cost curve of 200 billion tons of global abatement options and scoring them all relative to one another. I wanted to ask about your thoughts on nature-based offsets. I've heard you talk about them before. You're a big proponent. How do these markets develop? In particular, I'm kind of thinking back to a podcaster or an article that I'd read about Microsoft's approach in transitioning from avoidance to removal offsets and going down the nature-based path. And I think it was either last year in 2020, they could only find, I think, 1.5 million tons of offsets, and they basically ended up buying 90% of the market. But these markets are, are still very small. You know, I think one, one and a half billion dollars in total for nature-based. How do we get them to grow given the potential that you see in them? Well, it's it's becoming a really interesting question because on the precipice of this enormous growth trajectory, let me recap some numbers of why I think this is so important. Basically, everything I've looked at has some CO2 embedded in it. I mean, if you want to make copper to go into a renewable asset, there's four tons of CO2 per ton of copper. There's two and a half tons of CO2 per ton of steel. 
There's 140 tons of CO2 per ton of photovoltaic silicon and everything in between. And so if you're going to build these things and ramp them up, then making them is going to have a CO2 footprint and you need to take that CO2 out. If you go back, there's about 5 billion acres that have been deforested by mankind. That's released about 1 trillion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. And that's about 30% of all man-made emissions. So, you know, clearly a solution to the world's carbon challenges has to consider the biggest carbon sink in the world, which is forests. The numbers are that, you know, on average, an acre of forest can absorb about five tons of CO2 acre per year. And I think there's about 3 billion acres that can be reforested. So that would be about a 15 billion ton sink. And I often get the question of, well, are there any precedents that show this sort of thing is possible, to which I would point people to the tiny Arctic nation of Finland, my neighbor just to the north. And, um, you know, Finland, superb, nay, sublime, that they have the best data you will see on forestry. It basically goes tree by tree and goes back to 1920. And 70% of this country is covered by forest. They have taken out 2 billion tons of CO2 over the last century in these forests, about about half in the accumulation of biomass in bigger forests than there were, and about half in uh, the long-life locking in of harvested wood into construction materials, furniture, like long-lived. This is not wood for energy. This is the stuff that's actually removed from the atmosphere and stayed removed from the atmosphere and properly modelled. So that's about two-thirds of Finland's CO2 emissions as a country have been offset by its own forests. And the kind of final point to make here is this is Finland. Like we have the same climate here in Estonia. In winter, it is dark 19 hours a day. A third of Finland is in the Arctic Circle. Yield class there is yield class five. That means about five cubic meters of biomass accumulation per hectare per year. Versus, you know, if you're growing Sitka spruce in the UK, you can get to yield class 20. Um, and if you're in the rainforest, you know, you can get your class 30 plus. And so to think that sustainable and active forestry management in a nation like Finland has been able to offset two thirds of this country's CO2 without any CO2 price whatsoever. You realize the, the sort of the potential we're talking about here. And I, I know more and more startups in this space trying to de-bottleneck these bottlenecks to help people to inventory the forests. I mean, this is really all about trust. You, you need to know five things. And Microsoft make this point in that excellent paper you alluded to. You need to know that the forests are real, additional, long-lasting, measurable, and biodiverse. And really, we are getting more and more technology to do this through satellite data, drones, even blockchain technologies to guarantee that what you're buying in a carbon credit is a real trustable carbon credit. And actually, so much so that I don't think we should even use the word carbon credit. I think we should use the word verified nature-based carbon removal mm -hmm. to, to separate it from this old kind of broken, bogus carbon credit model, which is like, I'm going to offset my flight by not taking a return flight. No, a carbon removal credit means one ton of CO2 has demonstrably, unequivocally, provably been pulled out of the sky and stored in some long-lasting reservoir with a buffer, and it can be tokenized and you can trust it. And the companies that get that right and combine it with their carbon-emitting products are going to find that they're at the very bottom of the cost curve for decarbonizing those carbon-emitting products. And the biggest bottleneck of all, I think I would say, is there are people who don't want this to succeed. You know, I think in a way, sadly, there's a lot of lobbying for other technologies here that know that restoring nature and building businesses around that is going to push them off the cost curve. 
And for that reason, I think there have been attempts to discredit carbon removals because it's going to lower the subsidies that my technology gets, or it's going to mean that the energy transition produces a different set of winners than I want to be winners for my political ideological reasons. And I just think that that's really sad. Like we need to meet the energy needs of the world and take out all the CO2. You know, how much do you have to hate nature to pay a thousand dollars a ton for a direct air capture carbon credit rather than $50 a ton for restoring degraded forest lands. So I, I am very passionate about that space, and I think you're going to see some remarkable things in the space in, in the coming years. Last question. I want to come back to something that you mentioned in the very first part of the episode, which is around behavior change. And I find this a much overlooked element in many climate transition plans. I keep noticing it kind of appearing again as this fundamental element. The IAA's net zero emissions by 2050 scenario points to it, as does the UK's net zero strategy. If I remember, it's as much as five to 10% of sort of the long-term emissions reduction how do you think about behavior change, especially driving energy efficiencies? What are the right incentives or disincentives? And where I'm coming from on this is I'm a complete nerd when it comes to paradoxes. That's a confession. But I always remember the Jevons paradox. And, and oh, yes. Yeah. Stanley Jevons, 1863, as I live and breathe. Absolutely. As a technology becomes more efficient, you find you use more and more and more of it. Absolutely. And so what I worry about is that as we drive behavior changes around more efficient technologies, there's just more use cases, right? And there's this sort of trade-off that minimizes the net gains that are supposed to materialize. Well, you're completely right. I mean, it's a pretty sad state of affairs if the world in 2050 simply looks like the world in 2019, but without the carbon. What I mean by that is that, you know, you sort of hope that human civilization had advanced to doing things that it wasn't previously able to do. If you look at you know 30 year periods of progress leading up to 2019 or the 30 years before that or the 30 years before that, I mean, there's clearly going to be new types of demand that crop up that yeah, surely, surely any kind of model of global development wants to take into account of that. But th this is why I have such a problem with these kind of forecasts of, oh, we'll, we'll just just assume that demand goes where it needs to go to meet our model. I mean, I live in Estonia. Estonia is one of the most amazing countries in the world. Um, most digital country in the world, more startups per capita than Silicon Valley. I have had nothing but good experiences of, of this, you know, place since my wife and I moved here. But, you know, for 50 years, Estonia was illegally annexed by the Soviet Union. And this was one of the darkest, most horrible periods of history you can possibly imagine. I mean, everybody has grandparents and great-grandparents who were sent to Siberia and never came back. People watched living standards in Helsinki eclipse their living standards here by a factor of 8x over that 50-year period. I mean, unbelievable. And, you know, you, you think it's 30 years ago, Gorbachev is sitting there making, you know, five-year plans for what's going to happen in the Soviet Union. And, you know, trust me, come to Tallinn. This is nothing like Gorbachev's plan. And this is a very good thing for the world. And I, I sort of think the same way about like these forecasts of what energy demand is going to look like and how people should be living their lives in 2050 as laid down by policymakers today. I mean, it is no less ridiculous than assuming that I'm going to live my life according to the parameters laid out by Gorbachev in the late 1980s. And I think we have to be really careful with um, some of these assumptions and some of these roadmaps to net zero that I've seen. Instead, I think effective change is built from the bottom up. We, we want to find a thing that is economical, practical, takes CO2 out of the system, 
an ideal is also just pretty cool. And we want to get behind that thing. Uh, an example is what we talked about before to build trust in the restoration of nature for nature-based carbon removals, but also things like nuclear fusion that can take 3 million times more energy out of a kilogram of hydrogen than simply combusting it, uh, all the way through to next-gen versions of plastics, renewables, electronics, batteries, CCS, and then just these totally weird and wonderful niches like additive manufacturing or autonomous technologies or all of the acronyms like CLTs and CHPs and VFDs. I know I've given a lot of big picture macro comments and complaints today, but really it's this bottom-up work that gets me most excited in my research at Thunderstead Energy and also I think the the building blocks that are ultimately going to build us this, this decarbonized energy system of, of 2050. Yeah, well, it's a great, very honest way to end this episode. So it's been fascinating to discuss the energy transition, the first and second order impacts of the Russian-Ukraine conflict on the energy complex, and the trade-offs that we may increasingly face as policymakers choose between energy security, decarbonization, and price affordability. So I'd like to really thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Man Group, here today with Rob West, CEO of Thunderset Energy. Many thanks for joining us on a sustainable future. And I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate this. Thank you. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash RI podcast, or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.